Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalethal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. In recent years, the use of digital disinformation to subvert democracy has become a subject of widespread concern. Initially, people focused on identifying the sources of disinformation and the narratives and techniques used, what you might call the supply side of the equation. The initial response from policymakers, media organizations, and civil society also focused on the supply side of disinformation, helping news consumers understand what it is and where it comes from. But this left out the other side of the equation. Let's call that the demand side. Now, those who are trying to inoculate societies against disinformation are asking, why do people seek out, believe, and share this content? Here to share his experience and expertise on this subject, we're pleased to welcome Samuel Woolley to the Power 3.0 podcast for today's discussion on Breaking the Truth. Sam is an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin and program director of disinformation research at UT Austin's Center for Media Engagement. He's also co-author with Katie Joseph of a new report published by the International Forum for Democratic Studies titled Demand for Deceit, How the Way We Think Drives Disinformation. His new book, The Reality Game, is on shelves now. Great to have you with us, Sam. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Sam, let's kick things off by talking about why psychology might factor into the global conversation we're having about disinformation right now. So we've heard a lot about tech platforms and about authoritarian and a liberal actor spreading disinformation. But why should we pay attention to psychology of all things? I think it's really important for us to understand as researchers, uh, as civil society organizations within government as well, why people spread disinformation? What is it that makes them tick? What, what, what is it that about disinformation that's particularly interesting to people and why do they share it online? Um, when we get into the psychology of this, we start to understand that there's a lot of underlying factors. It's very easy to assume that people spread misinformation, which is accidentally spread information, or disinformation, which is purposefully spread false information, because they have a particular politics. But when you begin to understand and, and look into psychology, you see that it's to do more with things like a sense of belonging, to do with things associated with trauma or with repetition. And so psychology can show us a lot about why disinformation is on the rise around the world. In the paper, you talk about dividing demand for disinformation into passive and active aspects of psychology, and then you talk about how it influences news consumers. So could you talk a little bit about these passive and active drivers, what that means? So passive drivers for spreading disinformation psychologically would be things that don't require too much cognitive work on the behalf of the person. It would be something like, uh, say, for instance, belief perseverance effect which is a situation in which someone looks at things that are, agree with their politics and continue to agree with them. It's a very basic like way of, of thinking about information and the way that we access it. Active drivers of disinformation have more to do with someone seeking information out and going through a cognitive process when accessing that information. So something would like confirmation bias, which suggests that individuals seek out information that is in agreement with them through pre-existing beliefs, which is related to the passive driver, but is more of an active process where the 
the person's actually looking for the information, if that makes sense. And so when we take these things together, what we see is that sometimes people spread mis or disinformation passively without really thinking about it very much. And sometimes they actually do it because they need to feel a sense of belonging. Like, for instance, bandwagon effect is another one where people spread certain content because they want to feel a sense of belonging. And you often hear observations, generally speaking, that we've always had disinformation. Maybe you could just say a word about why this is so much more apparent and presumably acute in the digital age. That's a great question. I get this question all the time. We've always had disinformation, but the answer to this now is that we've never had disinformation and misinformation or, say, propaganda or computational propaganda at the scale we have it at now. It's technologically enhanced to a degree that we see tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of messages that are permeating social media that are false. We see the circulation of fake images or fake videos that are doctored with fairly sophisticated technology that make it very difficult to ascertain as to whether or not the image is real or not. And so there's the technological reasons, but then there's also the social reasons. So if you combine that advanced technology and the large scale of these things with people's psychology, what you get is constant repetition of of images. And from a very basic psychological standpoint, seeing imagery over and over and over again is a very good way to get someone to just basically believe it. And so in today's world, the confluence of powerful technology with continued polarization, a decrease in trust in institutions around the world, um, these things are very powerful and, and are creating kind of a perfect storm in a way. If I'm understanding it correctly, in a sense, the pace and the ubiquity and the intensity of today's technology has outpaced our ability to put it into context or to to process it in a way that's at a human scale. That's right. There's a lot of noise out there, in other words. And so people have a really hard time sussing out good versus bad information, true versus false information. Um, And also, it's a lot easier to share something that you agree with or someone that you agree with on social media than it is to really engage in debate online. This is especially true uh, when it comes to things like anonymity. Anonymity allows for behavior that would otherwise probably not be acceptable either online or offline. But when you factor in anonymity, people are able to sort of behave in a trolling manner. They're able to dox, to do things like swatting for political purposes. And and things get very messy and violent and dangerous. So as we're thinking about all these ways in which disinformation has become much more prevalent, of course, you can't help but think about some of the most recent and troubling examples of influence operations orchestrated by authoritarian regimes, for instance, like Russia interfering in electoral processes and so on through disinformation. How might authoritarian regimes leverage this demand side of disinformation within target countries or to try to play upon these particular aspects? That's a fantastic question. Um, We're seeing the rise of foreign entities, especially authoritarian countries, using computational propaganda as a tactic abroad. Uh, So it's no longer just Russia that's that's making use of this or, or the Internet Research Agency. And so countries like China or Saudi Arabia or Iran have made use of social media as a tool for the manipulation of public opinion. And one of the things that they try to do on a demand side is that they try to make it much more acceptable for people in the United States seemingly to share positive information about Russia or positive information about Iran. What they'll do is they'll seed and fertilize conversations on social media and things like the Facebook groups pages that are very, uh, very effusively supportive of Vladimir Putin or of Iranian policy. 
and then get regular people here in the United States to pick it up and spread it as if it was normal because of things like the bandwagon effect. Because basically, if you see people doing it, in a way, it's doing what I've called in the past manufacturing consensus, uh, creating the illusion of popularity for an idea when the idea didn't have popularity before. And because we have things like bots, which can bolster, amplify content without many people being involved, people are able to actually access this stuff and think that it's 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 there because of popular support. I guess the outgrowth of that then is what does that mean for the ways that we're thinking about these issues? And a lot of the emphasis has been on fact-checking, which is predicated on the assumption that if people are confronted with a fact, they will then adjust their belief system to accommodate the new fact. And so what you're talking about seems to suggest that that's not sufficient. Yeah. And in fact, the research shows, a lot of the research on fact-checking shows that if you do it after something has already happened, it can actually cement people's beliefs. And so fact-checking, as we've kind of created it, can prove to be not useful because you can imagine a situation in which someone on Facebook shares dis or misinformation, and then they're approached by the Associated Press or Snopes, one of the partners that Facebook has worked with, um, and they say, you've shared disinformation. Well, it feels as if it's coming from the top down, and it feels very sort of invasive. And if you're already given to conspiracy or already given to distrust in institutions, it's pretty likely that if a fact checker comes to you and says you're you're being bad, you're you're sharing bad content, that you will react pretty poorly to that. Um, and so what this means for us is that we have to think about new ways of building information literacy, of creating media literacy platforms, of promoting critical thinking that don't just address things after the fact, that aren't just a post hoc approach to dealing with this information years later or something. We have to actually do things real time. And there's organizations that are that are starting to get at this, like First Draft, and also BuzzFeed News is doing fantastic work, actually taking their breaking news model and taking it to social media and then saying, these are the things that are going on that are fake before people even share them, saying, beware about sharing XYZ image because it's three years old. It's not actually from today. The other thing is that it's extremely important psychologically that we address the underlying root issues as to why people share this kind of stuff or why people behave the way they do. And one of the biggest things about dis and misinformation and the reason why people share political propaganda is they need to feel a sense of belonging. For instance, if you think about extremist groups around the world, there's there's people that are involved in these groups for a variety of reasons, but one of them is because of a sense of belonging. And when we say you shouldn't be sharing dis and misinformation, you're, you're kicked off the platform, you're not allowed to do this stuff, we're basically pushing those people out of society, but we're not giving them any kind of alternative to the community that they've been in. As it says, like in The Art of War, you've got to build a golden bridge on which your enemies can retreat. And and if we don't do that, then we're actually going to fail and we're going to make these people more extreme. As you've described, the scale and the saturation and the speed and the level of sophistication that's coming from malign actors who can make the inauthentic seem authentic and so forth really puts an incredible burden on any given consumer of news. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit more about what some of the other ways to address this in a more systematic way so that the burden is more easily uh, distributed. I'm really wary, and I think you're right to point this out, I'm really wary of people who say this is just a user issue, that people spread misinformation or disinformation because they're not smart, because they're unintelligent. Oftentimes what I encounter in Silicon Valley is folks who say, we can solve this issue simply by giving people more information or by building a patch or a a new app, Uh, you know, these sort of technologically deterministic ways of solving the issue. 
I think that really this is not just a user issue, that the social media firms themselves made very specific choices when it came to design, and those decisions about design can be changed. In some ways, from what I've heard, Facebook and YouTube are attempting to fix the airplane while the airplane's being flown. And so I wonder sort of what new forms of social media will be created that are actually designed with democracy, designed with human rights in mind. Beyond that, I think there has to be specific changes made to the algorithms that prioritize information to people. The algorithms uh, play a very key role with the ways in which we discern information, the ways in which we share it. And the algorithms have to be rebuilt because they are designed with the people who built them's ethics in mind, with their values in mind. And what it comes down to in the case of, say, Facebook, is that those, those values and ethics are about profit, they're about scale, and they're about engagement. And we need to not optimize our next wave of social media for engagement to make people stay on it as long as possible. We don't need to maximize it for profit. There's always going to be some of this. Of course, we live in, by and large, uh, across the West in a, in a capitalist society. And that's, you know, that means that we're going to have to constantly fight back against this kind of thing because, you know, it, it makes more money. But there's a real demand for something else amongst young people, amongst regular people. And so that's why you're seeing the rise of things like encrypted chat apps, um, and you're seeing the rise of things like uh, Mastodon and other uh, technologies. But in a way, the, the challenge that has presented broadly understood is that many of the social media firms, collectively, we didn't anticipate that they would find themselves in this kind of public trust role with respect to news and information that was handled by other forms of media a generation ago and before then. And it seems like they're still coming to grips with the tension between their need to make a profit and this significant public trust element of how societies understand the world around them. And increasingly, ordinary users of these technologies understand the world around them through these platforms. And so I think going forward, this is really going to be one of the paramount issues we need to come to grips with. I think you're... you're Absolutely right. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I'd heard from the social media companies, we're not the arbiters of truth, I'd have thousands of dollars at this stage. Um, but in fact, social media companies are arbiters of truth. They do decide what people see and when. Trends are e exactly that. Um, the news feed feature on Facebook is exactly that. You are prioritizing certain information. You're prioritizing certain news. And in, in an era where Pew has done research to show that most people around the world get their news, at least, if not primarily, at least secondarily, from social media, that's problematic. And so we face a lot of deep questions today. And the primary question is, do we want social media companies to do that arbitration? And if so, to a degree, how? If not, or if it's kind of a middle road answer, then how do we build civil society group responses? How do we build third party organizations that are supported financially, I would say, by these wealthy social media companies that have caused the problem in many ways? but that do not answer to the social media companies. So one of the things I propose, for instance, is that these companies should have to put several billion dollars into a trust for civil society around the world and then allow it to be overseen by third-party organizations like National Endowment for Democracy or like academic institutions so that they can give back to journalism, so that they can give back to the Wikipedias of the world, so that they can give back to civil society. The companies aren't willing to take responsibility to arbitrate truth, and I'm doing air quotes right now, but they're also really 
really unwilling to give up any degree of power or to collaborate oftentimes with outside organizations because of the proprietary nature of what they do. And so we don't see inter-company collaboration, and it's also very hard for researchers like me to get access to data, and it's also really hard for civil society organizations to get involved in part of the decision-making process and take the burden away from them that they say that they don't want. Let me pivot to something that you address in the paper, and it's also in your new book, um, which is talking a bit about new technologies and the challenges, but also potentially opportunities that they present, specifically around some of these demand-side issues that you've identified. So in your book, you have a section about virtual reality, or what you call extended reality media. You have an example of Chinese Communist Party members being required to submit to loyalty tests using virtual reality, which frankly sounds more like a Power 3.0 Mad Libs experiment (laughs) than anything else. Um, But you say that VR, in short, is a superior medium for manipulating others. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what you're finding on that front. Yeah, I could write a whole book on this, but I only have a chapter in my book and we only have a few paragraphs in the paper. The example you give is really interesting of the Chinese Communist Party basically using VR to interrogate and test low-level members in the countryside way outside of Beijing, but to put them in front of higher-level members and to like interrogate them in a VR setting. The simple thing about VR is that it's multi-sensory, right? So you're seeing something, you're hearing something, and you're feeling it, and you know eventually you might even be able to have smells and, and whatnot. And so this multi-sensory capability of the technology has much more psychologically, but also just sort of uh, socially, mentally, all of these things to convince. As, as one of my colleagues at the Institute for the Future says, the body has no metric for fate. And so Apple and Facebook and Google are all really, really putting money into virtual reality. And so what happens when our social media enter the virtual reality space? We're talking about anonymity on a scale that is unthinkable, but also embodied. Think about things like harassment. Think about things like political manipulation. What happens when white supremacists try to indoctrinate people through a virtual reality game? One of the things that's positive, though, is that this hasn't happened just yet. There is VR social media. There is augmented reality social media, but it hasn't scaled to the masses. And so we can get out in front of this, but what it's going to require is some very deep interrogation of values at the companies themselves, and and that's a challenge. Just on that point, it's not just about these almost, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what that might look like, but it's also about augmenting things we already understand, like translation and voice applications. And there in your book, you in particular go into some of these scenarios where, especially as technology improves and voice technology can mimic specific regional accents, which I think is fascinating. It obviously potentially expands the opportunities for malign actors to make use of that for propaganda or disinformation. And um, you have a couple of like what ifs in your book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those what ifs are. And then, of course, what might we do about that? Yeah. So the one thing that struck me the most about the uh, the voice systems that are created to sound like real people, and we're not talking like Siri or Alexa, we're talking AI systems that sound very much like me. They modulate their tone. They say, uh... I was watching Google's release of Google Assistant, Google Duplex, and was astounded when they used the new technology that sounded just like a person to make a call to a salon and make a hair appointment. And the person on the other line had no idea they were talking to an AI. They had no idea it wasn't a real person, and the appointment was made. There was, there was back and forth conversation, and it was very convincing. 
And the reason why I was astounded was that in the early days of the computational propaganda project, we always used to say the use of bots on social media is almost like robocalling or push polling. Like we'd use that as a as a as a relationship, as a thing to relate computational propaganda to for regular people. <laughs> but when I heard these voice systems, I was like, wow, what happens when political campaigns weaponize these voice systems to call people over the age of 65 around the world, like uh, especially in developing countries with limited media systems where people don't have a deep understanding of the fact this could happen. But also in in the West, uh, in other countries around the world, democracies where we know that older people are the ones who mostly spread dis and misinformation. So you've described these challenges, which are quite vast, and they cover a lot of terrain, both in terms of the speed of the technological change and the complexity of it. What, in your view, should be prioritized in terms of responses for, say, open societies at the outset? But I think you properly alluded to other parts of the world where if these challenges haven't really completely kicked in, they will at some point. Yeah. So the funny thing about the paper and the book is that they're both quite solutions oriented. They were both written with solutions in mind. And so while it's very interesting to talk about the biggest challenges, I think that it's also important to talk about the solutions. And so in terms of solutions, we have to think short term, medium term and long term. Um, And we have to think across multiple sectors. So what can users do? What can civil society do? What can government do? And what can technology firms do? And so that you, you start to realize there's lots of things we can do to respond. In terms of technological solutions that the technology companies can engage in, but also civil society and users, there's all sorts of products that are out there uh, that do bot detection, that help with fact checking, that suss out fake news. But these things on their own are not going to be a panacea for, for the problems that we face. We also need societal solutions. So we need to reinvest in critical thinking. We have to build capacity for public interest technologists. In the 1950s, a lot of philanthropies came together and built public interest law. We've got to build public interest technology. There's not enough people who are going into technology for the right reasons. They're going into technology to make a lot of money. The best and brightest are going to Google and Facebook. And they think that they're going to do good things because Google had the philosophy of do no evil, right? But that's changed a lot. So where can we create a space for public interest technologists? That's really important. Um, and then finally, on a user on a user level, we need to think very simply about what we share and how. We need to read the whole article. We need to be careful about sharing images or videos, and just get a little bit more woke when it comes to dis and misinformation online. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Sam, would you like to go first? Sure. So this is an oldie but a goodie, oldie relatively speaking, but Algorithms of Oppression by Safia Noble, I think is a really, really important book given the context of what we're talking about. It really helps drive home the point that all of the algorithms and software that we're talking about are encoded with the values of people who build them. And oftentimes these decisions disproportionately affect minority communities and people that already are on the margins. Great. And Chris, how about you? So I'm reading Click Here to Kill Everybody. It's a harsh title. (laughs) Um, The subtitle is Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. It's written by Bruce Schneier. And the book critically examines key aspects of challenges for internet security and why the internet is so hard to secure. It's relevant to this discussion, uh, but I think it's also a very useful and straightforward description, both, I would say, for people who are more oriented towards technology and those who aren't, and a very useful read in that regard. 
think he really helps communicate why thinking about these security issues in what is an emerging new tech epoch with respect to the Internet of Things and AI and why, uh, very much as Sam was saying earlier in our discussion, we need to grow roots both at the civil society level and at the official level to deal with these challenging sorts of issues. And I think importantly, the book contains a number of uh, very down-to-earth and practical suggestions for how we can make these improvements. And I, I, this is going to sound like a plug for Ned and the forum, but I am literally reading the Journal of Democracy's just published 30th anniversary issue, which has a focus on democracy embattled. It really is a truly amazing lineup of some of the world's leading thinkers about democracy, folks like Francis Fukuyama, Alina Munji-Pipiti, Michelle Dunn, Andrew Nathan, Tom Carruthers, and others. And of course, separate essays from the founding editors of the Journal of Democracy, Larry Diamond and outgoing editor Mark Platner. And I would just say that Mark says in his introductory essay, five years ago, there was still a good deal of complacency about the health of democracy. And now most who care about the future of democracy realize that it's facing a serious threat and that they need to mount a strong defense, both domestically as well as internationally. Um, As an aside, you can also find past podcast conversations with both Mark and Larry on our Power 3.0 site. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Sam again for joining us. Thank you all for having me. It's been really great. And that's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we've discussed today, we recommend the International Forum for Democratic Studies' new working paper, Demand for Deceit, as well as Sam's new book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, guest producer Dean Jackson, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalathil and Sam Woolley. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on Breaking the Truth and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.